I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is the wonderful and much-loved Joanne Folletta. She's music director at the Buffalo Philharmonic in New York and guest conducts at orchestras around the world. Joanne, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast and taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule. I know you've been traveling a lot. You're just back from Europe, isn't that right? That's right, Andrew. That's right. Feeling a bit jet lagged, but but uh, very happy. And, uh, you know, back here in Buffalo now. Well, Buffalo, that's a place and a half, isn't it? How, how long have you been music director there now? I, now it's over 20 years. It's about 22 years. It's been a long time. Wow. And, uh, it's been a good time. It's been a time of growth and uh, um, this sort of consolidation of the orchestra, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a tremendous orchestra and you have a fabulous hall there as well. We have a beautiful hall. I mean, it was, uh, it's a Scandinavian hall. It's built by Saren and um, this two, two Sarenins, father and son. And it's, um, it's a very beautiful hall to play in, a very easy hall to play in, and uh, a close feeling with the audience, which I think ma- makes a big difference too. Do you actually live in Buffalo, might I ask? Yes. Yeah, my, re- my home, my main home is in Buffalo. Okay. So do you have several shovels to get you out of the front door? <laughs> <laughs> As you know, this was a bad winter in Buffalo. <laughs> Two major, major snowstorms. But, uh, but you know, in, in, in reality, it's not so much different from New York City where I grew up. I mean, the weather maybe is a tiny bit colder, but, but it does have occasionally these snowstorms, and uh, we just live through two big ones. Mm. I remember when I was there uh, a few years ago that uh, there was something of a snowstorm then, and it dawned on me that, that I often ended up Guest conducting in orchestras around Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, yeah. in the winter when the music director was probably off somewhere much warmer. Well, so. You know, it's it's not that surprising though because winter here is very long, so that snowstorm can strike anywhere from November till May. So you have a good chance of one. <laughs> now, Joanne, how did you how did you get into conducting? Well, I started out playing classical guitar when I was on my seventh birthday. But um, I think the thing that tipped the scales for me in terms of conducting was going to concerts in New York City and and just being fascinated by the orchestra and what it sounded like and how they seemed to uh, play together and read each other's mind and follow the conductor. For me, it was a, a great mystery, but uh, a, a beautiful mystery. So classical guitar, I mean, that's, that's intriguing to me because um, uh, I played cello and so I played in orchestras when I was growing up. And uh, of course, all the great conductors are cellists, but that goes without saying. Uh, coming to orchestral conducting from the guitar, did you, did you find that um, a natural transition for you? You know, in many ways I did. I mean, I didn't choose a classical guitar. My father chose it for me when I was seven, but I love it. And, and it's remained a very important part of my life. So, but the idea of, uh, of guitar for me uh, did inform the way I thought about the orchestra or helped me in a sense, partly because guitar is a harmonic instrument. I mean, it's not as, as um, kind of uh, uh, visible as piano is, but it is a harmonic instrument. And it also has like a harpsichord, the, the, 
the challenge of not having a, a sustainable pitch, a sustainable a sound. So that one is constantly trying to get the illusion of of legato, the illusion of forward momentum, the illusion of connection somehow. So as a guitarist, you grow up constantly thinking of the structure of the phrase mm -hmm. and how to move it forward and how to link things together. And I think that that influenced how I thought about the orchestra conducting too, when you're thinking of especially big, big scale pieces, how to make those uh, structural decisions that you have to make. So. I never would have thought that, of course, just playing the guitar, but but it seemed to me that that helped me think in a certain way. Do you think that's how Berlioz operated? I think so. You know, in fact, I was just reading about Berlioz because I was talking about him today in the radio, and uh, that it's been proven by some musicologists who've been studying the orchestral music is that it could be in some ways realized on the guitar. And supposedly mm. he was a very fine guitarist and that was it. I mean, because he had, I don't know if you know his background, he, um, his family discouraged him strongly from being a musician. And so he wasn't given strong training. He had to teach himself. So he learned the flute, he learned the guitar, he, he worked with some musicians who were willing to help him, but he didn't have that um, automatic musician background that would have involved a string instrument and or piano. So, so uh, that his, um, and maybe his idea, his his sort of freedom from rules was partly being a guitarist and mm. not having that kind of conservatory training behind him. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point and worth investigating, isn't it? I've, yeah. You know, of course, we hear so much about um, Berlioz being the great innovator and yeah. not being uh, the automatic... Um, next voice after Beethoven, um, that it was very much a, a voice by himself. And I think the guitar might be the key to that approach. I, I, think, you're, I think you're right, Andrew. And thank you for seeing that because he was, as I was reading, it was either he was considered a genius, uh, sort of a solitary genius, or, or a crazy. So, I mean, there was no middle ground with him, but obviously he was finding his own way. And the guitar definitely was part of that. Now, speaking of groundbreaking, as Berlioz was, I think you should regard yourself as somewhat groundbreaking. But today we're, we're very used to seeing a lot of female conductors on the podium, and that, that's wonderful. When you began conducting, there can't have been that many examples around for you. And I'm sure you've been yeah. an example and a shining example for so many people who are coming along today. Well, there weren't many at that time. There were some women, but they were women who really struggled, like you probably uh, know of. Um, 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 I'm trying to think of the ones that that um, uh, Sarah Sarah Caldwell, who was working in Boston in the opera there, Antonia Brico, who was working in Colorado. But these were women who, despite their talent, didn't have much continual success. I mean, they had, they really had to struggle. So I think um, there were not that many examples of successful women on the podium, mm -hmm. especially orchestral. I mean, maybe choral uh, there were, but, um, but lately, I would say in the last even five to 10 years, there's been um, just a, a dramatic rise of women on the podium. I thought, frankly, Andrew, it would have happened long ago. Uh, but it didn't, you know, it would have happened along with orchestras hiring women and, you know, women composers and then, uh, but it seems to have, have waited a while. So. 
Well, I um, I can't offer any more analysis to it than than the way you just have uh, explained it. There, it's always been very strange to me that um, let's say in the Soviet Union, and I trained in Russia for a time immediately um, post Soviet Union, that there were lots of female conductors there in the Eastern Bloc countries, very few in the West. And I would have thought it would have happened sooner than it has. But um, thank goodness it is happening today because it's, it's good for everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't help the business, the industry at all, if it's seen as marginalizing and uh, limiting in any way. Well, I think you've been groundbreaking. A lot of other people do as well. But you're also a very individual creator, if I might say. What I mean by that is you're not only an exceptional conductor and music director. Those two roles don't always go together. And you seem to have found a formula or have a certain specialness about you. I don't know if that's a word or not. Um, that has has led to this wonderful period in your life where you've had lengthy tenures at two wonderful orchestras, beloved of the communities, helped the orchestras grow. I'm sure there's a, a component in there that must go beyond the musical aspects of it. Do, do, you, do you think you can identify that? Well, I think it, it, it comes down to um, enjoying being a music director rather than a conductor. And there, there, are, there are a lot of conductors I know who say to me, I would never want to be a music director again. I don't want the troubles and the problems. I just want to come in as a guest. It's a nice week, things go well, and you don't have to worry. But I, I found in, in the orchestras which I've been with for a long time, that there's a lot of deep satisfaction in seeing an orchestra become closer to its community, to become stronger, uh, more stable financially, to become um, more willing to take chances, that all takes time. I mean, I think that's maybe what it is, Andrew, that the things that a music director wants to accomplish, as you know, take time. They don't happen overnight. And sometimes there are disappointments that things don't happen when you feel they should. Um, but the process of growing that organization and ultimately seeing it become more connected to its community for me has been very, very, a very happy experience, you know, to, and to get to know people in the community because I've always made it a point to live in the community. And um, that's helped because then you know what's going on in the community. You see people in the supermarket, uh, you go to their birthday party, if you know, you become friends with, with people as you do on the board and in and, and the orchestra. And uh, it's a connection that allows the organization to, to have a kind of um, champion that is very visible instead of someone who comes in and does the concerts and then leaves. Um, and it's, it's, it's just a different way of thinking about it. And, um, but it requires, I think it requires a tremendous amount of patience. And I think that I tell people this right away when they become music director, don't expect that things will change overnight. Um, it, won't, it, won't be, it won't become the orchestra of your dreams in a year. <laughs> It's going to take a while and it's going to take a lot of hard work and it's going to take a lot of, of understanding what the orchestra is about. Every orchestra is different. It has its strengths. It has its, its challenges. And, and uh, you need to really get to know that. Well, all that said, do you find that when you are 
establishing relationships with content goers, with donors, sponsors, this sort of thing. Do you have to find a way of being persuasive to show them how they need to value having an orchestra in their community or do they get it already? Well, no, I think I need to, I, I, I need to find a way to communicate that to them. But since for us, Andrew, it's so natural I and mean, we believe it so strongly, it's easy to talk about why it's important to do this sort of work or why it's important to introduce new music or why it's important to have a, a great soloist come and inspire everyone uh, because we understand that. And they want to understand that. I find for sometimes even the most uh, generous people, they don't know a great deal about music and they look to you to help them into that world. You know, open the door for us. Tell us what you're thinking. Tell us what you need. Tell us how we can can make things stronger for our orchestra. So it, it's, it seems to me a very nice relationship that's available there if the conductor is interested in it. Another aspect of how I think you're incredibly enterprising, and I don't know how long you've been doing this, I haven't checked dates or anything like that, is um, some of the most wonderful recordings that are available today are, are recordings of yours very often of, let's say, neglected repertoire. Is that something you feel is an important avenue for you? Or is it just a way of getting other recordings out there? I think it was important for me. And it started way back when I was uh, still at Juilliard and I became the music director of the Women's Philharmonic. Now, Andrew, I was certainly not equipped to become music director of the Women's Philharmonic. I knew nothing about music by women. I mean, we were not taught that. I don't know if you had had an opportunity in your you know learning repertoire days, but I certainly didn't. And it was not until I went to San Francisco and spent ten years with them um, that I realized that the world had a lot of music I never had heard of and would have never learned. And I think it just changed something in my psyche. The idea that there's all yeah Beethoven symphonies are fantastic and 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 they will never go away and should never go away, but but there's so much else. And, and uh, so that just changed the way I thought about music. And then when, when I became music director of Buffalo, Noxus was interested in recording with us, but they had this incredible challenge to me. They said, we don't want to record anything we have. Now, I think you probably are a member of the library of Noxus Library. They have everything in several versions. They have literally everything, but they didn't want that. Um, and we were an orchestra that played repertoire of a certain time. I mean, we certainly were never going to be a new, uh, we're never going to be an early music orchestra, never. I mean, we didn't have the kind of people who had or had the equipment to do that or the, or the, the, the interest in doing that. Uh, we were never going to be a, you know, a, a snap crackle, new, new music orchestra. So we were living in the kind of uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. And to find music that was not known became an enormous challenge, but mm. it, it was very satisfying. And, and yes, a lot of the pieces we did and we have recorded uh, would not be perhaps pieces that people would say, that's my favorite, or that's you know the greatest uh, symphonic composer I know, but they're really fine, fine. It's really fine music. Well, how so, did you balance that with the programming in Buffalo? Because as you said, the orchestra, like most orchestras is very much focus on the 19th, early 20th century repertoire, because that's what audiences think they like right. and that's what fine. they most immediately appreciate. 
Now, if you're recording things, hopefully you're trying to find performance opportunities for those works as well as part of the preparation, let's say. Uh, how did you manage to navigate that? Well, Buffalo is a more open-minded orchestra than one might think. I mean, because of its background, it had as its music director, Lucas Foss, you might not know that name, but Lucas Foss was, you know, very, no, of course. very, uh, a very important force in new music and also celebrated other new, new young composers. He was, so the audience got used to that and probably um, had more of it than they liked. But even Michael Tilson Thomas being here was dedicated to, to American music. So they had a feeling of already of understanding that orchestras do stretch and that's important. And that's makes their orchestra uh, uh, doing that. They're doing something that, that um, is making a difference in the orchestral world. So they were open to it, but I always, as you do, I had to be careful of uh, what I put with it on a program to make sure there was something that related to it, but something that they could identify with immediately. So, um, that the uh, it was varied. There was varied options, and and uh, you know with more or less success. I mean, most of the time people were interested in hearing the new work. Um, uh, maybe sometimes we went a little bit too far. I remember one of our most challenging concerts was an all Charles Ives concert, where people <laughs> were not maybe prepared. A large there was a small small intense group of people who wanted to hear that, but. Um, but for the most part, we try to navigate that by mixing things together, just as you do. I, I think, you know, finding those new works that you've recorded to a, a little, little known works that you've recorded as well. And uh, it can be very exciting. I'm sitting here thinking, how does one prepare an audience for an evening of Charles Ives? I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I think you, you just sit there and take it. Uh, but of course, there, there are also people who who walk on water to get to a concert of Charles Ives' music, and I'm well, sure. Well, that was it. Did... There were a lot of people who, you know, were really hungry to hear this music, and uh, uh, and the second symphony is quite wonderful. So we did that as our as our big piece. But um, um, again, there is so much music, and it's 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 become very difficult for conductors now, I think, to manage all of that because there's so many options. There's so many considerations of diversity and and uh, and living composers and women composers that, that um, uh, you know, you have to really program with, at least with the sense that you believe in it. And I think that that's what's important. But that's a challenge, isn't it? Because yeah. at some time you've got to look at things and say, Am I satisfying somebody else's agenda in, when I'm programming yeah, this? Yeah. Or do I really believe in what I'm doing? And I think there's nothing worse. And I'm not singling out any composer, uh, any generation or whatever, but there have been times when I've had to conduct something that I really hated. Yeah, and, yeah. and I feel such a fraud when I'm doing that because I came into this business, like you, to conduct music that I loved and wanted to communicate to other people um, and help them have the same sort of experience. So it is a challenge today because there are there are so many pressures on us in the performing arts yeah. to satisfy, as they say, different areas. Right, and or check boxes as people say now, but you know, the thing is this, it, it's it's not possible to like everything and and the conductor has to at least be the arbiter of that. And, and uh, as you said, if you're doing an unusual piece, but you believe in it, it will, it will be felt. People will understand that. Well, I, you know, they might think, 
I don't know if I want to hear that again, but obviously Maestro really thought it was a piece worth hearing and the way he conducted it was so thrilling in a sense. So, so what else do we have than just trying to do the new music and the unusual music that we believe in? That's all we can do. Do you ever introduce pieces from the stage and, and not so much give people a warning about what they're going to hear, but tell them, you might not enjoy this the first time through. I didn't enjoy it either. But then when you listen to it a little more and get into it, there's so much in this world of sound that it's worth learning, worth hearing again. Do you ever do that from the stage? We do. And I do a pre-concert talk, you know, mm. also before when people come in and, and try and prepare them for, you know, this is, this is something that uh, um, there's no right thing to hear in it. You know, you have to, in a sense, be willing to let it, let it come at you, let it to, you know, circle around you and, and uh, don't have any preconceived notions about it. And it's, it is true. I mean, cause I find with the musicians too, that very often they don't like a new piece on the first reading. And they're, they're befuddled by it. They're sort of put off by it. They're wondering why it's gonna take all this time. Is it worth it? And then by the fourth rehearsal, they've become a, a just totally in love with this work. So, but the audience, the poor audience doesn't have that chance. They hear it just at once. I think it's very important we do make that effort to communicate yeah. with the audience because it's, um, uh, it helps enormously to make that transition from uninitiated to to observer and then to being yes. an absorber of the music. I remember yeah. once, uh, I know this is not about me, but just a quick story here. I used to work with a conductor called Giuseppe Sinopoli and Giuseppe was really into the most avant-garde music. And I remember a concert in the Royal Festival Hall he conducted with the Philharmonia Orchestra. I can't remember the piece. It was awful. Oh. And of course, there were the people there who loved it because they were going to love it. But when he was taking his bows, somebody got up from about the 10th row, walked all the way along, stood right in front of him and just shook his fist at Giuseppe <laughs> on the podium and was shouting away that he shouldn't have been <laughs> presenting that music to anyone. So, and of course, Giuseppe never spoke to the audience. So um, it proves the point, I think. Now, Joanne, tell me. Of all the recordings you've done, which which ones stand out the most? Uh, either because you're most proud of how how they turned out, or because you introduced music that was unfamiliar to people. Well, you don't have to tell you. Maybe the the oddest one was the one that now uh, looms very large in my mind, and that was a uh, uh, music by a, a composer who had perished at Auschwitz, and. Um, the story is is a tragic one. He was living um, he was living in a, a, a part of Italy um, and was partially Jewish. And, and uh, he was a music teacher, and he knew that the Nazis were going to come for him. So he gave his scores to a, a young student and said, "Just hold on to these. I'll come and get them when I'm back. Just put them in your closet, and I, you know, just because I have to. They're going to take me away." And, now, of course, he never came back. He was killed in 1944. But the young music student uh, obviously loved his teacher and felt an obligation. He carried these scores with him throughout Europe. He w and ended up in Buffalo as a cancer surgeon at, uh, at our hospital here at Roswell. And he visited me soon after I came, carrying shopping bags of scores, saying, I, I'm getting older now and, uh, and I, 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 have to, I have to pay my debt to my teacher. You have to please look at these and, and play them. Uh, now, you've seen scores like this, handwritten, 
the paper's crumbling. Uh, you can't really tell what the notes are. It, it was just a mess. But there was something about his, I mean, he was in his 70s by then, late 70s, and his dedication to his teacher was like overwhelming to me. I said, all right, I'll look at them. And uh, it was, it took months and months. We had, we had to have them, you know, uh, um, printed. We had to have, we did endless, endless checking and of notes and pitches and all, and we recorded them. And um, I think for all of us, as much as that was very difficult, and even at the last rehearsal, we were still questioning is what note is this? And is this really right? And um, we did two recordings of his second and third symphony. And I think that they will always be like landmarks for me, uh, not only of, of doing something um, for, for, the, for the thought of, of doing what that composer would have wanted, which would be for people to hear his music, most of all. It was never played in his lifetime. And, um, and seeing the orchestra coalescing around this initially insurmountable task and then actually being able to do it. So that, his name was Marcel Tiberg. He was an Austrian, um, but living in Italy, and uh, and it's 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 something that we I'm still very close to the family. I mean, the, the uh, doctor Mihich died, but but his wife and his daughter uh, still um, are very close, and and it was uh, for all of us something that that was very important. Is that repertoire you've managed to perform live, or did it only happen? No, on we recording? did it. We did it live. We did it live. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. I want to ask you as well, what do you regard as being the milestones of your career? Well, I think a lot of them are uh, obvious ones, like taking the Virginia Symphony to Carnegie Hall against all odds. You know, we were a small orchestra, a small budget orchestra, and we went to Carnegie Hall and, uh, um, and uh, with a great deal of trepidation, like, why are we doing this? Should we be here? And, and having the musicians feel that we did it and we, we, it was a wonderful performance, which we, which we have on CD. It's the same situation with Buffalo. I and mean, we were even able to take the Buffalo Philharmonic to, uh, on a tour of Poland uh, because of our connection. Buffalo has a very high Polish emigrate population and, um, and the connection to Poland is strong. So that's why we decided to do that one tour only of Polish cities. And uh, it was beautiful. It was in the middle of winter, it was frigid, but somehow, the reception and the uh, uh, the love of the people there it was was amazing. So those stand out as as special, you know, milestones for us. And were there members of the Buffalo community coming with you on those trips? Yes, yes, there were, there were, and in fact, that's become something that we try to do because a lot of times people might not want to go on a tour of Europe by themselves, but if they're coming with orchestra friends. Uh, and they're there for a reason of supporting the orchestra. They're, you know, they're happy to do that. We've done a lot of little junkets. We've gone to Nashville. Uh, we even went to uh, um, Bogota with a group of, of people. So it, it's, it's been fun. It's been very, very much fun to see the people who are willing to, as they say, become orchestra groupies and come along. That's, uh, that's quite a, a mixed bag, isn't it? New York, know, was... Poland, Bogota and Nashville. And Nashville. <laughs> All of that said, you've got uh, a lot of uh, different areas of repertoire and your belt, as it were. Uh, is there a, an area of, of the orchestral repertoire you feel most comfortable in? 
Well, the one that I, the, the, the area that I really feel I thrive in because I enjoy it the most is early, uh, early 20th century uh, and to the Second World War, you know, before and after the First World War. Because it, to me, well, first of all, as, as you know, the orchestra all of a sudden is exploding with color. I mean, there's, the paint box is very big, you know, all of a sudden. And, and also that the time lent itself, I think, to music of, of great emotional depth, not always happy, of course, I and mean, music of, of, of terror, even Bartok and, and, and uh, Stravinsky. I mean, this is music of, that's, that's sometimes very difficult, but always very human. And I, and I love that about that. I mean, this kind of, of uh, telling a story of, of a great change in the world that we will never really see. We see we've seen other great changes in the world, mostly with technical development, but, but they saw like a, a, a frightening change into, into the modern age, you know, and, and uh, even Mahler. I mean, that this, that's music that, uh, while I don't do it all the time, uh, I think is the most interesting, the interesting area. Do you think as well that when composers became much more aware of uh, not only their own environment, when they were freer to operate and travel around their, their own countries, that the, um, the uh, growth in, in communications between uh, different countries has accelerated the, um, the change in music, if you like. I mean, I think obviously of Haydn, who worked in isolation for years, and right. the Viennese school, you know, they, they weren't really aware of what was going on in Scandinavia or England or France or whatever, unless those people came to visit them. And it was a very slow process. So all of these new coloristic effects, they go along with the um, accelerating development of technology through That's those right. decades That's as well. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the world became a smaller place. Uh, for good and bad, you know, but but people began to to learn more quickly from each other. And in a sense, though, you know, I wonder what it was like then, because if you were an orchestra flourishing in France somewhere, you never heard another orchestra play. I mean, your performance of a Beethoven five could have been very different than the one that we would hear today. And now, of course, when we can hear a hundred different recordings of Beethoven five, sound very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah, that's, have that's, we lost something? I don't know, Andrew. What do you think? Have we lost something? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think there are orchestras that um, have a definite personality, a definite timbre, sound, whatever you want to call it, um, and they're fewer and fewer every every time because uh, because of recordings. Uh, I think yeah. of orchestras like the Czech Philharmonic, the what was the Leningrad Philharmonic. Um, the Gewandhaus Orchestra, Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah. These are orchestras with real hereditary sounds. Characters, it? yes. Yeah. yeah, real characters. And because of recordings and because of touring and because of the intermingling of, of students and traveling the borders and joining other orchestras, orchestras across the world sound very, very similar. And yeah. uh, also, I think it's conductor's fault in a lot of ways. I agree with you. Yeah, conductors well, who conductors are traveling the world. They, they, they're not, it's not like Ormandy staying for his entire lifetime with the, with the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, but, so there's not anything that develops in that way. I mean, the, and orchestras become very adept at accommodating whatever the conductor is showing. 
So if they can, they can play, you know, in the most bland way and, and it's, they don't have a personality of their own, many of them. So, so maybe we have lost something. I mean, I'm sure there were some very strange performances given of, of pieces that we know, but people didn't know how they went. You know what I mean? But, um, but still there was something individual about that. So Joanne, what do you see as being the future for orchestras in the US? You know, I, I, I alternate between being worried, Andrew, honestly, and then moments of, of feeling that our art form is so precious that there is nothing to worry about, that we need this music the way we need to breathe air and that we will never lose it. It will, it will maybe cons be consumed in different ways, but that um, we have to have it. I mean, it, it speaks to us in, in ways we can't even explain. But there is the frightening reality that um, a lot of people don't have the advantage of even having any exposure to classical music in their growing up years, which is really frightening. And they are not finding their way as they become adults. Um, that could be said to be true of literature too. Maybe the, you know, the great literature of the past is not consumed as much as it was. And um, I hope we're not, we're not letting go of, of precious things, you know, mm. but, uh, but I, I remain optimistic because of the strength of, of the music and because of how much I know it affects the audiences. You know, when you turn around at the end of the concert, you realize that that audience has been changed you know, they're in a different place than when you started that concert two hours before. And uh, nothing else will do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's very true. And I'm always taken by audience members who approach me after concerts or send messages later on and say, you know, I don't know anything about music, so I don't know that my opinion counts. Well, to me, that's the only opinion that counts. That's right. I don't that's, want I don't want a concert that's full of trained musicians. None yeah. of us do. We we want people who are there to love it, particularly people who don't have any lengthy background in in right. enjoying the art right. form. Um, you've kind of preempted one of my last questions as well, which is what what do you think are the biggest challenges we face looking ahead? I think it's really starts at the very beginning of music education. If we are not able to see that music and art are critical to young people. And that's not to become musicians or to become artists, but that music and art have an intrinsic place in their lives, that they can feel successful, that they can feel expressive, they can feel, um, they can learn about themselves. And in learning about themselves, they learn about other people. If we can't see that and you know, we see it as musicians, we know how important it is, but there are a lot of people who don't see that. And I think that will make the world a much poorer place. So if somehow we can get to the point where people are given an instrument in the fourth grade and said, you know, here, come and join the orchestra, come and join the band. You don't have to become a professional musician, but you have to know what it's like to make music or to draw, to learn how to paint, to be in a play. Those things are so critical. And yet we concentrate on other things all the time. Well, I love that answer. That's absolutely fabulous. And I'm very grateful to you, Joanne, for spending all of this time with us today. I have a last question that I ask all of my guests, and I hope you won't find it too intrusive. But at the end of the day, 
what's the one thing you're most proud of and want to be most remembered for? Um, with the orchestras that I've worked with for a long time, that I've felt I've been a part of making them be more loved. That's made what I make, I'm so proud of, that if someone in Buffalo has come to the Buffalo Philharmonic because I've invited them or I've played something for them or they felt they could come in knowing nothing and they are now in love with music, that's the greatest thing I could hope to do in my life. And that's, you know, as you do, that's that's what we dedicate our lives to. So that's what I'm proudest of, that, that people in Buffalo love the Buffalo Philharmonic. Joanne Valletta, thank you so much. You love the Philharmonic as well, and orchestras around the world love you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a delight to talk to you. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick with a Point. <laughs>